Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to an instrumental version of Don't Laugh at Me, a hit for Mark Wills that was named NSAI Song of the Year and written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Steve Seskin. The San Francisco Bay Area folk-influenced writer behind additional hits such as Tim McGraw's Grown Men Don't Cry and John Michael Montgomery's Life's a Dance will join us later in the show to discuss his unlikely string of success as a country hitmaker and so much more. Part 1. So last episode was Smokey Robinson. Yep. Once-in-a-lifetime experience. Absolutely. Um, although if he wanted to do it again, I'd be down. Yeah, twice in a lifetime is fine, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we actually did the interview itself during Grammy weekend. Yeah. And we didn't talk about the Grammys um, last episode, uh, even though it, it it posted about a week after the Grammys. Um, but I feel like the Grammys is our Super Bowl. Oh, for and sure. we would be remiss if we were not to at least make uh, some comment. Now... Yeah. I have been to the Grammy show myself mm-hmm. only one time in person. Yep. And this year, I didn't go to the Grammys, but you went to the Grammys. Yep. Just trying to catch up with you, man. Right? And it was your first time. My first time. Yeah. So, insider perspective, mm-hmm. what'd you think? How was the experience? It was great. It was, I mean, it, it's anytime you get to go and sort of experience the glamorous, glitzy side of the music business, because most of, of what we do is kind of in the trenches, you know, right. it's just day to day. It's, it's paperwork and busy work and all that kind of stuff. And, right. and uh, uh, a lot more no's than yeses. But then you <laughs> finally get a chance when you get to go and see the, the shiny part of it. And, right. and that part was great. And I got to bring my wife. So she saw the shiny part of it. Right. Um, do so, you think she's proud of you yet? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to ask her that and put myself in an awkward position. Yeah, but it could get weird. Yeah. Um, Would you say that you hobnobbed? You know, I, I didn't hobnob. I, I hobbed, but I didn't knob. You know what I mean? I didn't go yeah, all the way in there. Partially. You uh, wanted to stay cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I did. I actually saw some people I knew yeah. uh, and hung out with them, which which was kind of cool. Like, it felt like, hey, it's my people here. You know, right. I, it's I didn't, prom for us. Yeah, because to me, like, the whole networking thing kind of feels lonely. <laughs> you know, to, to try to work a room and just right. explain why you matter and, right. and all that kind of stuff. Right. I, I'm not a fan of it. But if so, you're under the impression then that you matter. Or to try to drum up a reason why I matter, mm. or you know, mm. I, I need. Yeah, I'm here's not. why you freaking matter, my friend. <laughs> is that my co-host here? I'll say it. I'm going to be proud of this guy. Contributed multiple songs to the album that won the Grammy for Best Contemporary Christian Album of the Year. So, yeah, I, I mean, it, look, man, you materially and significantly contributed to something that the industry has voted as the best in class. Well, thank that's you. pretty cool. Th- thank that's you pretty cool for, for saying that. And it was it was an absolute thrill to be there and to see that award given out um, yeah. and, and to be a part of it. I mean, it was just awesome. Now, I, I will say you are a Grammy nominee. 
like you you can have that on your on your resume forever and, and i i will make sure that people don't refer to me as a grammy nominee because there's a different distinction hmm. um or, or a grammy winner in my in my case there was no trophy you know to, to be handed to, to the writer but I, I will say that being a part of it I, I will sort of bask in the uh, proximity glow of the album's success. Well, I will say this. Uh, a, an album cannot win if there's no songs on it. That's true. So in a way, you embody the Grammy. Yes. You don't need a Grammy. You are the Grammy. That, and that's why I didn't want to have to explain it. That's why I'm wearing gold body paint today because <laughs> I wanted to look like. I, and I got it, trophy. my friend. Yep. I got it. I yep. picked up on that. Giant head, painted gold. <laughs> yeah. I, look like I wish trophy. you had worn clothes, but uh, <laughs> but I totally got the reference. Yeah. Well, it's not the first time I've shown up here naked. <laughs> um, another interesting thing happened, being that we are song people, uh, a milestone at the Grammys this year. Last year, we talked about the song that won uh, for Song of the Year, yep. Bruno Mars, That's What I Like, yep. um, had like a lot of writers on it, more songwriters than had ever been uh, on a Grammy winning right. song before by several people, um, which, you know, fine. It's actually yeah. a great song. So whatever. It's, it's reflective of, you know, of our times. Yep. Yeah. Sure. It's changing times. Uh, and, and I love that song. I think it's great. Um, this year we we're back to a three writer song, which is a little bit more par yeah. for the course, but Islands in the stream this year, right? Islands in the stream this yeah. year. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, something, Oh no. You know what? It's childish Gambino. Oh yeah. Right. 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 Okay. <laughs> so, Got my uh, years off. So Childish Gambino with two co-writers wrote This Is America. Um, if you didn't see the video, it was a total cultural phenomenon yeah. last year. Um, and uh, Song of the Year, first time ever that a hip-hop song won Song of the Year. It's surprising to me that it's the first time ever, to be honest with you. Right. Like, I feel like hip-hop's been such a kind of like important part of the fabric of, of you know, pop, popular modern music for so right. long. It's, it surprises yeah. me that it's taken that long. Yeah. But, you know. It's about time. Yeah, here we are. And, uh, you know, 110 episodes we've done here at Songcraft. We've had one hip-hop guest, <laughs> Talib Kweli. Yep. Uh, so what this tells us is, uh, hey, man, we got to get with the times. That's true. And and I think Talib would say the same thing. He was... <laughs> he did say that, <laughs> yeah, I think. He, he was, I think uh, he roundly uh, forward uh, in letting told us, us know we yeah. hadn't done enough. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Anyone who wants to help us with that? And, you know. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and this is going to surprise a lot of people. I am not real connected in the hip hop <laughs> universe. So it uh, does surprise me. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if uh, if you are, then uh, throw some people our way. We'd love to have some hip hop writers on the show sure. to talk about their craft. Yep. Um because it is its absolutely own distinct craft, and it's a very important part of the yep. fabric of what we call popular song. Well, if the Grammys have said so, that makes it so. If the, if the Grammys said it, it must be true, right? Yep. yep. Words to live by. Speaking of words to live by. Yes. Steve Seskin is a writer who knows his way around a word. <laughs> nice transition. Yeah, thanks. I like that. I like that. Yeah, Steve, a uh, great songwriter. In fact, not only is he a, a hit songwriter many times over, Steve actually teaches songwriting he does seminars and and courses all over the country maybe all over the world he could probably um, do this podcast without us he he probably does not need us yeah. um so as you know in a former life i was a professional songwriter right um i was writing for sony atv in nashville and i was you know living in la going to nashville doing the nashville thing um and I got to the point, you know, I started out, I think I was writing pretty good songs mm. and I got to the point where I was like, I'm writing some of my best material. I'm writing some stuff that I, I look at it and I go, man, these are great yeah. songs. 
Um, and I wrote some real clunkers too. So it wasn't like I, my, <laughs> I haven't heard those. I heard the great my, ones. My batting average was not like amazing, but I was coming out with some stuff I was really proud of. And I was thinking, you know, at one point I thought, what are some of my my favorite songs that I wrote? Yeah. Um, the titles of these will mean nothing because they never became successful. But I wrote a song called Two Paper Town. It's a great song. I'm very proud of. Yep. Uh, I wrote a song called uh, I Tell It Like It Was, mm-hmm. which I think Another is great a great one. song. Um, I wrote a song called Making a Life. Yep. Um, and, and Making a Life and Two Paper Town are both kind of message songs. And it's yeah. really hard to write a message song without kind of being preachy or heavy handed. And I think those songs both do what they set out to do in, you know, successfully. So those are three of the songs that I've written that I will point to and say, I am proud of these songs. At some point I realized, Oh, I wrote all three of those songs with Steve Seskin. (laughs) (laughs) So as it turns out, Steve Seskin is just a really good songwriter. No, let's just say that Steve (laughs) brought out the best in you. He brought out the best in me. So, Hopefully now we can return the favor and and I can do what I do best. Yeah. Ask questions. Well, I, <laughs> I wasn't there for this one. Yeah. But let's see if Steve brought out the best in you as an interviewer. Mm, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just good for me all around. Let's see. Part two. One of the most successful Nashville songwriters who never actually moved to Nashville, Steve Seskin has written songs for a long list of artists that includes Kenny Chesney, Toby Keith, Peter Frampton, Waylon Jennings, Alabama, Ricky Skaggs, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and others. He has written seven number one hits, including the Grammy-nominated Grown Men Don't Cry by Tim McGraw, the John Michael Montgomery hits Life's a Dance, If You've Got Love, and No Man's Land, the Neil McCoy singles No Doubt About It and For a Change, as well as I Think About You, which earned Colin Ray an Academy of Country Music Award for Video of the Year. Seskin's song, Don't Laugh at Me, was named the NSAI Song of the Year after it was recorded by Mark Wills. The anti-bullying anthem became a children's book and was the impetus for the Operation Respect, Don't Laugh at Me project, a curriculum designed to teach tolerance in schools. Through the program, Steve regularly performs in school assemblies and has launched related programs that help teach kids how to write songs of their own. Working from his home base in the San Francisco Bay Area, Steve is additionally an active keynote speaker and songwriting instructor for the West Coast Songwriters Association, the Nashville Songwriters Association International, the Kerrville Folk Festival, and other organizations. Though best known for writing hit songs for others, he is also a successful performer and recording artist who has released more than 20 albums of his own material. Perhaps the best way to experience a Steve Seskin song is by hearing it performed by the man himself. Steve, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to kind of go back to the early days because um, people think about country songwriters. They might have a certain idea or preconceived notion about the background of a country music songwriter, you know, a a guy plowing the field or or whatever (laughs) it is. But your your background and where you were raised is a little different than than people might expect. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in New York City, born and raised. Uh, First 21 years of my life I spent there. And musically, I have to say I listened to everything but country music growing Hmm. up. Yeah, I was a big city boy. And and so I grew up um, listening to theater songs, like my earliest recollection of 
me making music was sitting with my mom at a, at a piano and singing songs from Broadway shows. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Beatles hit in like around 64, right? 63, yeah. 64. I was 12 years old. And, uh, you know, th I wasn't thinking about writing songs then. I just loved singing and listening to music. Yeah. And then as I uh, went to the High School of Music and Art in New York City, it coincided with that whole era of protest songs. Right. And, you know, so it came up on uh, originally on like Peter, Paul, and Mary meets the Weavers meets hmm. Phil Oaks. And then after that, it became all the singer-songwriters of the late 60s, early 70s. Right. So it came up on Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Simon and Garfunkel. And I think that was the first time that I was really drawn to music, the power of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and writing songs with some lyrics that meant something. And mm. if you think back to that time, those were hit songs. Four Dead in Ohio was like a hit song, you right, know. Right. There it is on the radio. Um, and I thought, man, this is like really cool. And I started writing songs. What's the first song you wrote that is one that you maybe kept or, or actually would have played for people? In, in high school, I wrote... Oh, I don't know, seven or eight, ten songs. Of course, they were all about girls, right? You know, <laughs> right. it's what everybody starts out doing, right? Right. Um, but uh, I was kind of learning the ropes. You know, I didn't. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was pretty self-taught. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um, I just knew that I liked making stuff up. Hmm. You know, and I liked exploring uh, the mystery of chords against singing a melody against a certain chord. So I don't really have a recollection of the first songs I wrote being yeah. very good <laughs> right? Um, or even remembering what the, what they were called. Yeah. I think we have to fast forward to about 1972, which was only like three or four years later. Right. I had moved to San Francisco. Was it kind of that whole countercultural music revolution thing that, it, that happened in San Francisco that drew you out there? Yeah, I mean, it was after the summer of love. Um, so basically, for a lot of life reasons, I wanted to get a, away from New York. Hmm. It was a little too crazy for me. I just split up with the girlfriend kind of deal. I went out to San Francisco to get as far away from New York as I could. Yeah. But in San Francisco at that time, there was a really cool music scene that was still bubbling after that whole era. Yeah, um, sure. I remember, for instance, meeting John Hyatt hmm. at a little 40-seat coffee house right. and hanging out with him. And at the time, I really wasn't writing songs very much. Yeah, I was singing them, and what I would do is I'd do some cover songs, but I never really wanted to do like famous cover songs, like Fire and Rain, Here I Go, you know? <laughs> right. A cover song could be a song you didn't write. Yeah. And so I was taking songwriters like John Hyatt and singing. I used to do like six John Hyatt songs. Wow. But they were songs nobody else knew. Yeah. I always would give him credit, but it, it gave me a sound that I think helped me develop as a writer mm. because I was listening to and covering some really good writers yeah. uh, that were in San Francisco at the time. And I, I don't know if I knew it at the time, but I was, I was definitely learning yeah. from them just by virtue of singing their songs and learning a little bit more about form and how songs are put together and the journey of a song. 
Now I remember, and maybe this was around this same time. I remember you telling me, uh, one time that you had spent time kind of busking on the street, just, just playing for, for people that were walking by. Was that around that same era? Absolutely. From 72 to about 75, I played mainly like at Ghirardelli Square and the Cannery and Fisherman's Wharf area. Um, and that also was a really good training ground, you know, because if you think about it, when you go down to play, sing, and there's nobody there, right? you, you really gain a lot of, um, you know, the ability to capture people because yeah. you got to grab them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I would say it was like 74 or 5 that I really started writing a lot. Yeah. Um, and I did my first record in like 1975. But still at that time, the writing I was doing was only for me to sing. Mm. I was like the epitome of uh, back in that day of a singer-songwriter. Yeah. There was absolutely no notion of other people singing my songs yeah. or writing for the marketplace or right, any of that. Right. Or I just wrote songs because I loved doing them. And I guess I was, uh, you know, I was growing up and uh, had things to say and things yeah. were happening in my life. And I always like to say that during those days, I wrote maybe 10 songs a year. Yeah. They were all in first person. <laughs> they were all about me. <laughs> right. Like, uh, you never had to ask me what was going on in my life. You just had to hear my latest song. <laughs> right, right. The reason it stuck with me, that, and I asked you about the, the busking thing, and you touched on it, is a lot of your songs to this day have opening lines that kind of grab you by the throat and say, hey, pay attention. And And I remember you saying to me at one point, about that experience of how when you're when you're playing on the street and someone is walking by your window of opportunity to capture that person's attention is minuscule five so, seconds yeah do not waste you know and i see that very clearly in your in your not only your songwriting style but even your performing style to this day of capture them you know get the audience's attention and i think that's so fascinating to kind of draw that line to the guy who probably had a nickel in his pocket trying to get something going through the successful songwriter and seeing how that has continued to play itself out and how even those lessons in the time where people feel like they're struggling and maybe they're not really getting anything going are actually shaping who they're going to become, you know, when they are a successful songwriter. Well, and I think to this day, like first lines of songs are super important. Yeah. Uh, so are second lines, meaning that, <laughs> you know, to me, you're trying to grab the audience uh, of a song, whether it be with a lyric or a musical riff. Right. You know, like when Day Tripper starts, it's not the first line that grabs you. Right. It's that guitar lick. Yeah. And yeah. and you know what it, you know what song it is, yeah. you know. So all of those things grab people in different ways, right. but they do grab them. Uh, when when you first hear a song, and it, isn't that nice when you can hear something, you go, "Yeah, I know what song this is," or yeah. "Hey, I dig that. Let yeah. me keep listening." Yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, as you say, I mean, your songs in that era were very much um, autobiographical, and even though you have never stopped being the singer songwriter that you were then, I think a lot of people know you as a guy who quote unquote writes songs for other people. Um, talk a little bit about how that transition began how you kind of evolved out of just being the introspective uh bleed on the page autobiographical singer songwriter to 
having a mind toward, well, maybe this is a song for someone else's voice. Well, okay, well, let's go from uh, 1975 to 1985, hmm. and I did some shows opening for Crystal Gale. Yeah. You remember Crystal Gale? Of course, yeah. Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue was yeah. huge at the time. We did like two or three nights, and the second night, her and her husband, um, still her husband, Bill Gatsimos, walked into my dressing room, which doesn't always happen, by right. the way, where the headliner speaks to you, <laughs> lowly <laughs> opening act, <laughs> right. and said, um, hey, we just caught your set. And we were impressed. Like, you, you know, you ought to go to Nashville. And I swear I looked at them like, excuse me, Nashville, <laughs> no disrespect, but Nashville? Right. Me? <laughs> right. Because at the time, I was your typical, I don't think the word Americana even existed then, yeah, yeah. but I was like a folky singer-songwriter, like there was nothing Nashville about me, right? or at least in my mind there wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know what it is, but when somebody with that much hair <laughs> says to you, I don't know, the way she said it, like, I just had to do something about it. Hmm. And it was, took me about three or four months to get on a plane to Nashville. I didn't know a soul in Nashville. Right. My only contact in Nashville was I had done some jingles for a company in San Francisco, who and the guy who owned that company, his best friend was Hal David hmm. of Backrack well, and David. Not a bad connection. And he at the time was the president of ASCAP, Hal David was. Right. And they got me an appointment at ASCAP. Hmm. That's it. That's nice. all I had. I planned yeah. four days or five days the first trip. And, you know, as as I now know happens in Nashville all the time, it's kind of a little town. Yeah. Everybody knows each other. It's nothing like L.A., for instance, in terms of the massive music business. Right. Um, and so I showed up in Nashville with, like, barely knowing anybody Went to ASCAP to my one meeting, and this guy who's no longer with us named Merlin Littlefield picked up the phone. He liked what I did, enough yeah. to pick up the phone and call a few publishers and saying things like, hey, this I got this kid in my office. I was like <laughs> 35, by the way. <laughs> I got this kid in my office, and uh, you ought to see him while he's here. He's only here for a few days. There's something cool about him. Right. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> and um, every publisher that I went to see kind of liked what I did, but didn't think it fit into Nashville. Right, right. You know, but one of the things that drew me to Nashville, as, as you know, is the whole notion of co-writing. Yeah. Because I had never written a song other than by myself. Yeah. And all of a sudden, literally in those four days, I was already writing songs with other people hmm. on one of those days. Yeah. I sang a demo while I was there, well, uh, like all this stuff started happening. And then, of course, I, I'll never forget this, when this one publishing company said to me, so when are you coming back? And <laughs> I said, uh, in three weeks, you know, because I literally had no plan to ever come back. <laughs> but right. I said, in three weeks. Oh, well, we want to set you up with all our writers and um, all this stuff. And the next time I came back, I had like 10 days of co-writes right. planned. Trust me, it wasn't all good. Um, <laughs> but I realized something very quickly, that there was something to 
the uh, two heads could could be better than one. Yeah, like that whole interesting. Uh, you've done it. It's different than writing by yourself. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have an appointment. You don't beg out of it. <laughs> like right. You, you, you actually sit there for five, six hours right. and see what happens. And so that's the first time when I also realized in the course of those 10 days, I wrote some songs that were not me. Hmm. Meaning I was in them. Right. My, my, my uh, stamp was on them. But I didn't want to sing them. Right. And yet I was proud of them as a writer. Yeah, yeah. As a writer, you can yeah. write whatever the heck you want. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And suddenly I was incredibly drawn to the freedom that that supplied. Right, you know? right. And then I could write with some like heavy hard rocker one day. And then write with some gut bucket country guy the next right. day. Right, right, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. You know, you are like a unicorn in that a guy who has had huge Nashville success and never moved to Nashville. I mean, there's you, there's Hugh Prestwood. I I don't even know if there's any others there. There's, it's very uncommon. And I I guess the, the, the question really is not why did you not move to Nashville? Because I'm sure you could give different answers at different stages. But at that point in the very beginning, you go there, you start going a lot Things are starting to happen. It's showing promise. You're yeah. enjoying it. Why at that point in your career did you not go ahead and relocate there? Because my wife would have left me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's part of it. No, because I, I trust me, I, I thought about it for yeah. sure. Um, the time I thought about it most was four years after that first trip when I actually signed a publishing deal with your dad, Woody <laughs> Bomar, at a company called Little Big Town Music. Yeah. And things were, like, happening. Like, it was, it was, you know, back then we didn't know that it was about to be the most successful decade of music in history. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, but I really thought, I remember having a conversation with my wife about, maybe we should move there. Yeah. You know, and I think I would I would counsel any young writers who are living somewhere they don't really enjoy anyway. Yeah. And they're 22 years old or whatever. Move to Nashville. <laughs> it's a happening place. It's yeah. great. I have nothing against Nashville. But at the time, I was 35. We had just adopted a son. I loved where I lived. Yeah. I mean, I love the San Francisco Bay Area. I wasn't looking for a new place to live. Yeah. So, and I looked at it this way too. I said, you know, for all the disadvantages of not living here, I have a major advantage. I get to come here, work really hard for 10, 12 days at a time. Yeah. And then get out of Dodge. Mm -hmm. I don't ever get burned out on this. I know staff writers at publishing companies who are like constantly burned out. They're writing... 200 plus days a year. First right. of all, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I love writing songs. Yeah. But I can't imagine writing songs 200 plus days a year. Yeah. That, that You know, you know as well as I do, there are writers in Nashville who at their peak are writing 150 songs a year. Right. How do you make up that much stuff? You know, like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Talk about going from writing 10 songs about yourself a year that are self-motivated, life you know, motivated to like just making stuff up each day. So I would say at my peak, I wrote 60 songs a year, maybe. 
Yeah. And now I'm back down to like maybe 15 or 20. Yeah. You know, and working harder on each one. Like mm. I wouldn't want to have a co-write five days a week. Right, right. Every week. So in that sense, I would say when I came to Nashville, I was one, motivated, ready to work, had really saved up a lot of little fragments of ideas and stuff. Yeah. Um, and it worked to my advantage in that in that sense. Right. Um, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said to me, you know, nothing's ever going to happen for you here. Yeah. Uh, unless you move here all the time. Yeah. And I was like, well, I guess nothing's ever going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, but in those peak years from like 1989 through 95, 6, I was in Nashville like eight times a year, like, like yeah. 80 days a year. Yeah, yeah. So... I always tell writers, you know, like, hey, I didn't go there twice and expect the whole world to fall in my lap. I right. mean, I, I made the kind of commitment to it that I could make. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and still be happy. Right. And 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 I happened to pick a good time. Yeah. Yeah. In history to do it. Well, you 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 say those, you know, fruitful years beginning in 1989. Um, the first time we see the name. Steve Seskin appearing on the Billboard charts is a song called You're Not Even Crying by the Marcy Brothers. Oh, my God. Pretty low on the Billboard chart, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> but the following year, a, a legitimate top five Billboard country hit with uh, Waylon Jennings. You know, Once you started having chart activity, it was it was you're kind of off to the races pretty quick with with that success. Kind of talk about how all that kind of came about. Well. I'll, I'll add one thing. In between those two things, I had a song that wasn't on the radio, but it was on an Alabama record right. called She Can. And that was literally three months after I signed with Little Big Town Music. Hmm. They recorded that song, and it was on a record that back in the day when people bought records, <laughs> right. it sold like three million records. And I was right. like, oh, my God. Right. This is fun. Right. Um, I don't think I've ever heard the story of how you wound up getting signed as a writer to a little big town in the first place. Well, there are a couple of different versions of it, but my version, <laughs> or at least your dad told me that. <laughs> I'm not sure it went that way. My version though is, uh, there's a place called the Bluebird Cafe. A lot right. of people know, way more people know it now than knew it back then. <laughs> right. Thanks for the, the TV show. They have a Sunday night writer's night, uh, where writers come in and do like two songs. Yeah. And they always have a special guest at the end of the night who's had a lot of success uh, that does five or six songs. Right. So I played there on a Sunday night, and the special guest that night was Bob DePiro. Right. And he came up to me at the end of the night and said, hey, I really like those those two songs you did. Are, do you write anywhere? Do you, are you published? You know, right. like, Do you have a publishing deal? And I said, well, not right now. I said, I just left somewhere, and I have like six songs right. that I've written since that other deal ended. And he said, well, you know, I'm part of a brand new company. And he, and, and I had never heard of your dad at the time, but he said, and there's this guy, Woody Bomar, that is kind of running it, you know, and a guy named Kerry O'Neill. And I said, he said, would you like a meeting on Monday morning? This was Sunday night. Right. And I said, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so that's really how I got a meeting with your dad, hmm. and I played him my six songs, and he liked them. Yeah. And I will say this: he was not happy that I didn't live there. <laughs> and so that's the beginning of we signed those six songs. 
So we didn't do a whole thing for like a year or two or three. We just said, let's let's kind of like go out together yeah. before we get married. <laughs> right. And then by the luck of, as luck would have it, literally two months after that, Alabama recorded that song and then the Marcy Brothers thing and then uh, the Waylon Jennings thing, which was, it really was pretty amazing to have somebody like Waylon Jennings record your song. And yeah. I, I still remember... The very first time I heard that song on the radio, and I should add this caveat. I remember the first time I heard it on the radio, and I remember the first time I heard it on the radio when I hadn't called to request it, which, <laughs> which really is a different, that's a different thing, you know. We'd have a house out in the country, a picket fence the whole nine yards. They said our love last forever It was written in the star Wrong I should have known it all along In the wake of this huge Waylon Jennings hit that's kind of the beginning of Steve Seskin that we've come to know. It's the beginning of this streak Um you followed that up with a couple of charting singles by the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and Highway 101. Um, but then, 1992, John Michael Montgomery, Life's a Dance, enormous hit. Um, that's a song that you wrote with Alan Shamblin, with whom you've written many fantastic songs. Just tell us a little bit about the the, the background there and, and, and the behind the scenes of that song. You always have your list of like... Um people you'd like to co-write with. Yeah. And usually they're people doing a lot better than you are at the moment. <laughs> but sometimes they're just people who you just admire. Well, I was writing with a guy named Mike Reed, yep. who is a, just a brilliant, classic Nashville songwriter. I forget how I got set up with Mike Reed, but I met him somewhere, and I'm sitting there with Mike Reed, and it's like a big day for me. It's like, Mike Reed, I'm writing with Mike Reed. Yeah. And the door opens... At the in the writing room, and it's Alan Shamblin, and he had just written a song called "He Walked on Water." Yep. For uh, Randy Travis. Yeah. And I was like, Alan Shamblin, and my, the door opens, and Mike looks at Alan, and says, and Alan says, "Hey, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to say hi, Mike." And and Mike looks at Alan, and then he looks at me, and he was kind of a mentor to both of us. We were yeah. like in awe of him. Yeah. You know, just to get that straight. He looks at Alan and he looks at me and he says, you guys ought to write together. Hmm. And it was like, you know, God has spoken. And we <laughs> right. set up a date for the next time I was going to be in town to write. And Alan always tells the story like, I wanted to cancel. I was dying to call him and just say, <laughs> no, I don't want to do this. I don't even know this guy. Right. You know, I wasn't so scared of it, but it was interesting because even back then, Alan and I, we're both guys that like to get to know somebody before we wrote a song together, like right, go out right. to breakfast. Like my notion of co-writing has always been, I want to get paid up front. Hmm. And the payment up front is not money. It's have a good day, like for six hours, laugh a lot. Right. Like have some fun with somebody. Yeah. So I like to sort of make sure that we're, as people, like enough on the same wavelength right. that we're going to have a good time. And in the case of Alan and I, we never got together for two seconds till we wrote Life's a Dance. Right. So I wrote the chorus to Life's a Dance 
I wrote that the night before we got together. Because hmm. one of the little things, the tenets, if you will, of co-writing is it's nice to come in with an idea. Right. Now, the co-writer sometimes goes, nah, what else you got? Yeah. But sometimes they go, wow, I like that. Yeah. You know? And uh, interestingly enough, I got that idea from an article in USA Today. Hmm. And it was an interview with Morgan Freeman. Huh. And the interview was Driving Miss Daisy had just been a big hit. Right. And Morgan Freeman, a lot of people don't know this, but before that movie, he was in like 50 movies. <laughs> right. He was like a character actor, B actor, yeah. no fame, just like, but if you check it out, he was in a ton of movies. Yeah. And they asked him in this interview, well, how does it feel to be finally recognized in a, in a, a role that you were singled out as like, probably the role of your life you yeah, know yeah. in that film and of course since he's become you know a huge superstar movie actor but he said his answer to that was well you know the way i look at it life's a dance you know and he didn't say any of the other words i put in there by right. the way he just <laughs> said life's a dance and you know it's a learning experience or something like that yeah. and and you don't know all of it when it's happening, you right. know, so this is the next step in my career kind of thing. And I just, just took that and said, life's a dance. You learn it as you go, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the next morning I brought it to Alan. I was scared to death. I go, he's not going to like this. It's not yeah. that good. You know, you're doing this whole thing in your mind. Right. And Alan Shamlin said, I like that. He said, let's write that. Yeah. There are different kinds of writers. And one of the things about co-writing is that when you write with somebody whose strengths are different than yours, right? it's kind of interesting what can happen. Right. So I grew up in the Bronx, New York, like we said. So let's just say I'm not well-versed on like little country expressions or, right. you know, I'm just not. And as a songwriter, lyrically, I've always been really good at big picture ideas that go in choruses, titles, you know, this whole life's a dance, you learn as you go. Sometimes you, I can think of those kind of things all. I'm not bragging, but I can think of those kind of things all day long. Yeah. What I'm not as good at, or at least back in 1992 I wasn't, <laughs> are like the little um the imagery in in verses. Right. The, the pictures, the, the Nashville, they like to call it furniture. Yeah, yeah. Something you can see. Right. And I'll never forget this. We started the first verse to that song. And we decided to talk about, like, the girl in high school that was out of your league, you know. And the first lyric was, we started with, uh, when I was 14, I was falling fast for a blue-eyed girl in my homeroom class. And I said, trying to find the courage to ask her out. And in my mind... The next line, maybe not the lyric, but the thought was going to be trying to find the courage to ask her out was like impossible, was <laughs> never going to happen, was rather difficult. <laughs> right. And even though I knew that wasn't the lyric, I didn't know what to say. Yeah. And, and he looked at me and said, say that again. That's, a, that's how he talks. He's from <laughs> Texas. Say right. that again. I said, trying to find the courage to ask her out. And he said was like trying to get oil from a water spout. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I said, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Because <laughs> I could be 150 years old and I would never have thought of that line. <laughs> right. 
and I call it the in songwriting we call that the show me don't tell me right imagery thing because trying to get oil from a water spout is rather difficult never going to happen nearly impossible yeah everything I was thinking right but with an image yeah you know and the whole rest of the song became like Alan was so good at those kind of lines or like you know uh they just come rolling out of him like that where you go this is like Mark Twain meets you know one of those kind of guys that just says right. stuff and it's like that's profound <laughs> right 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 um and i have learned a ton from writing with him when i was 14 i was falling fast for a blue-eyed girl in my homeroom class trying to find the courage to ask her out was like trying to get all from a water spout what you would have said i can't say i never did ask don't you move Something from my blue-eyed girl Sink or swim, you gotta give it a whirl Life's a dance, you learn as you go Sometimes you lead, sometimes you follow Don't worry about what you don't know Life's a dance, you learn as you go You know, what's interesting to me is looking at um you know looking at that era and and your continued success and particularly with john michael montgomery i mean in the wake of that song he did uh if you've got love which was a number one single that you wrote with mark sanders um he did no man's land another top five billboard country single that you wrote with john scott sherrill um so i mean john michael montgomery was a great thing for you and you were Absolutely. a great thing for him. And, you know, I, I'm curious if, cause I don't really know exactly how that sort of thing works. I mean, is, is it the sort of thing where because he had the success with your song that his label or his management or whoever goes, let's keep going back to the Steve Seskin. Well, let's kind of make Steve Seskin our, our go-to guy for, for hits or one of them. Me meaning that you do your access to an artist does improve once you've had a, a hit record with them. Uh, I'll say this, especially when it's their first one. You could have a hit with, uh, I had a hit years later with Tim McGraw, and I, I know him, but not well, you know, yeah. because he was already a superstar when he recorded my song. Yeah, yeah. So when you get the first, like, I was very lucky in that both Neil McCoy and uh, John Michael Montgomery, I wrote basically their first singles, uh, Kenny Chesney also. Um, now, it doesn't always happen, yeah. but in John Michael Montgomery's case, um, I had a song on each of his first three records. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Neil McCoy, and actually it was kind of between those first two John Michael Montgomery hits that um, Neil McCoy gave you your first number one single on the Billboard country charts with No Doubt About It, a song that you wrote with John Scott Sherrill, who you mentioned earlier, a fellow writer at Little Big Town. Just like every lock's got to have a key Every river goes looking for the sea And when you plant a seed, it reaches for the sky It's just the way it is, nobody wonders why Like coffee needs a cup, you know that it ain't much good without it we were meant to be together, no doubt about it. Like a hammer and a nail, socks and shoes, we go hand in hand like a rhythm and blues. But 
Well, very funny story about that song. First of all, I, when I first signed at Little Big Town Music, I was scared to death to write with John Scott Cheryl. Because <laughs> to me, he was like, like a god of songwriting like and he was kind of like a interesting character right you know um kind of quiet you know and and i'm not right. and I, I don't know i was just like i was on my best behavior when i walked in there you know <laughs> right. and um well first of all the title of that song people kept saying it to me so i wrote it down in my book no right. doubt about it right and i i I ran it by like all these other co-writers and they all said the same thing, which basically I agreed with. Ah, it's kind of a cliche. How would we write that? Right. Like no one was interested in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I said it to John Scott, Cheryl, and he said, he looked at me and he said, that's interesting. <laughs> he said, well, I think a good way to do that would be like, we were meant to be together. Ain't no doubt about it, you know? And that's all we had. Yeah. So it was going to be a love song. And we started out with this whole idea of like, well, like if we were meant to be together, let's use other things that were meant to be together and then compare them, yeah. you know? Well, of course, if you go down the road of like romantic type things, it becomes like you want to throw up, you know? It's like, like the flowers need the rain, like the sun and the moon and the <laughs> right. stars and the, yeah, oh, yeah. God, really? <laughs> uh, and we were just about ready to throw in the towel. Yeah. But um, we went to make a pot of coffee. We were at the publishing company. It was a Saturday or a Sunday. No one else was there. Yeah. We made a pot of coffee. Right. And then we discovered that there were no cups <laughs> anywhere. No styrofoam cups, no mugs, right. no things we could wash there were just no cups i don't know what happened <laughs> and we looked at the pot of coffee and we said to each other well uh we better go get it, some cups you know because right. you can't and i think one of us said well what good is a pot of coffee without a cup right and he looked at me like wait <laughs> that's interesting and until that moment we had never thought of using like things that weren't necessarily lovey-dovey. Right, right. You know, and if you know that song at all, part of the lyric is just like every lock's got to got to have a key. Right. Every river goes looking for the sea. When you plant a seed it reaches through the sky, that's just the way it is. Nobody wonders why. Like coffee needs a cup. It ain't much good without it. We were <laughs> yeah. meant to be together, ain't no doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. So that literally I always say, thank God there were no cups. Right. <laughs> you know, because it made that song happen. Yeah. Well, you and John Scott, uh, of course, continued to um, have success with uh, Neil McCoy, who had another big hit uh, with For a Change, hot on the heels of your initial hit with him. Um, and then soon after that, uh, Kenny Chesney, All I Need to Know, that was a, a top 10 single. And again, very early in the in the Kenny Chesney uh, career, who has since gone on to have a gazillion hits, of course. Yeah. Um, but that was that was kind of the start. But there's something about a lot of your songs that just sort of have more um, emotional depth and more resonance, I think, than a lot of kind of hit radio fare. Um, and you have certainly written songs that are just fun, and they exist for the sake of being fun and, and feel good. But I also feel like there is um, a certain, uh, and I don't even know what to call it. There's almost like a, 
uh, a poignancy or even a social awareness in a lot of your songs that I think is unique to you. And, and it really, I think that came to the surface in the most kind of um, obvious way with Colin Ray. And I think about you. When I see a woman on the news Who didn't ask to be abandoned or abused It doesn't matter who she is I think about you Eight years old Big blue eyes and a heart of gold When I look at this world I think about you And I can't help but see That I think I've always had a healthy interest in matters of the heart and the human yeah. condition and social issues. Um, I grew up listening to people who were injecting that kind of thing into their songwriting. Total. I went to high school with Janice Ian. If hmm. you remember uh, Society's Child yeah. before at seventeen, right? I was a big fan of songs that like talked about people's problems or gave people a, a, something to think about you know, yeah. or something to wrap their heart around. It was always important to me to, at least in the lyric sense, to fill songs with those kind of things. I think uh, I think About You was unique in, in several ways. And, and let's give credit where credit's due. I wrote that with like a masterful, they say you're only as good as your co-writer. Well, I wrote <laughs> it with Don Schlitz. Right. He wrote The Gambler and 75 other top 10 records. <laughs> um Right. You know, he's a genius. Yeah. Um, and I got to write with him. And that was the first song we ever wrote together. Huh. Um, I walk in to write with him, and I've got like 16 ideas. I had like stayed up all week prepping <laughs> right. for this very important co-write. Right. And I walk in, and he says, how you doing? I said, great. He goes, I have this idea I've been saving for you. Hmm. I said, moi you you have idea you're saving for me you know like i just didn't like i couldn't believe that right you know and i said well what is it and he said you know how you got kids right i said well i have a son he said well i have daughters and he goes into this whole thing about you know being a dad and watching your daughter become a teenager and you know and he said like let me tell you something he said when you walked in the mall and you have a 16-year-old daughter, and you're walking with her, and you see some guy from across the way, look at her in a way where you know what he's thinking. Right. You just want to kill him <laughs> kind of deal, you know? And he said, it got me thinking that, like, everybody looks at someone in that sort of way sometimes and sees someone rather attractive. And But he, he said, but that's not what I want to write about. I want to write about crossing the line even more so and i said that's really interesting you know he said and i don't think i could write this with a lot of guys in nashville hmm. which you know i took as a supreme compliment yeah that don schlitz would say that to me yeah and we started that song with the notion of our first talk about it was just talking about 
how society uses sexuality to sell us everything from cars to TVs to the beautiful, the gorgeous blonde is standing by the Jaguar telling you how you need this yeah, and kind of insinuating that, and if you have this car, you'll have me too right, right. kind of deal. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting. And that's where the first line came. That every time I see a woman on a billboard sign, I think about you. Yeah doesn't quite give away what it's really trying to say at right. the beginning so it's a little spooky right. like the guy sounds creepy yeah yeah you know um you know and and the whole idea of like well who's he talking about yeah you know yeah. and really the payoff of that song is eight years old yeah it's not that's the chorus that's a minute 30 seconds or something into the song yeah. is when you find out who the you is yeah yeah um and then from there, we took we decided to step it up a little bit in the last verse about, you know, uh, just what women have to put up with yeah. from some guys in our society, um, that we wanted to write a song that maybe would empower some women to leave abusive relationships or to, to just, you know, speak up when they needed to speak up yeah. about things they were going through. Right. Um, one of my really uh, favorite things that have ever happened with a song is there was a thing called the Tennessee Task Force Against Domestic Violence, and that was their song of the year, hmm. which is interesting because it wasn't like, they don't have like a music, they're not a music organization, right, right, right. but they like really uh, gave credit to our song. The, yeah, I, I didn't trust that song. When I first started playing it for people, my own version of it, yeah. this was before Colin Ray recorded it, I was always like, I'm creepy. I'm, you know, like <laughs> I want to like give people the book, the I think about you for dummies. Reveal when, you right. know, hang um, with me. I promise this isn't weird. <laughs> yeah. But Don Schlitz, I'll never forget this, said to me, trust this. It's going to be okay. The payoff when you finally find out who the you is will be even bigger that we since we didn't reveal it earlier. Yeah. And I guess he was right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that that it's funny to me when you look at somebody's like entire body of work and this is like you're talking about before, there are some songs that you sort of emotionally resonate with and they become part of uh I mean that's a song that you play in your in your shows and it's very much I feel like something that's part of your kind of singer songwriter persona as much as it is a Colin Ray song. And then hot on the heels of that, you had another number one with Ricochet's daddy's money. And that's one I've never heard you play live. And I don't, I can't imagine, you know, that's the song that's like, it's a whole, it's a whole other stream. It's a complete different thing. She's got her daddy's money. Her mama's good looks for laughs and a stack of love that song but that song is a total product of co-writing i wrote yeah. it with bob DePiro, who pretty much 90 percent of what bob DePiro writes are fun radio right you know put the put the top down and drive to the beach songs and yeah, he's yeah. super good at it yep and mark sanders who's also really good at that and who's also good at wordplay and yep 
And it was one of those co-writing days where I was dragged kicking and screaming to a really good party. Yeah. You know, and it was a party that I would never have at my house or go to without some other urging, you know. But once I got to the party, I chipped in. One of my biggest contributions to the song Daddy's Money was the last words of the chorus. Because, I mean, the song's already weird to me about you're in church and you're basically like looking at this woman in the choir loft thinking like, oh, my God, I'd love to be with her. (laughs) So to me, that's already weird, you know. Um, Secondly, it featured some of the worst English ever. (laughs) I can't concentrate on the preacher preaching my tension span done turned off. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, We got to the end of the chorus, you know, uh, and it said, uh, you know, she's a good bass fisher. There's no such word as fisher, by the way. (laughs) She's a good bass fisher, dynamite kisser, country as a turnip green, She's got her daddy's money and her mama's good looks. Like we ended the chorus there for a second and thinking we need something that rhymes with green, of turnip green. Right. You know, and I said, well, I got something that not green, but just uh, E sound, like a vowel sound. But I remember it occurred to me that the whole song, you're like staring at this woman and just imagining her in your life. But there's nothing mutual about it. Right. The whole, right up to there, it, it it's a little stalker-like. Right, right. And I said, well, how about this? Country is a turn of green. She's got her daddy's money, her mama's good looks. And look who's looking at me. That was my biggest <laughs> thank you. I contributed that to <laughs> right. the song. Because up till then, I was feeling like, they really don't need me here. Right, right. They, they could seriously be writing this without me. <laughs> right. But to me, that was a big um, contribution to that because all yeah. of a sudden the feeling was mutual. Right, right. Leave it to the San Francisco to guy to say, hey, guys, we don't need to be objectifying women in this song that's objectifying this woman. Unless they're Let's looking at it. you. Unless they're objectifying you, too. <laughs> then it's okay. Then it's okay because <laughs> right. there's suddenly this it's mutual, mutual objectification. Sort of deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, in 1998, Mark Wills had a huge hit with Don't Laugh at Me, um, another one of the Steve Seskin staples, one that has kind of launched a whole sub-career for you. Um, Written with Alan Shamlin, by another, the way. Another Alan Shamlin co-write. I'm a little boy with glasses, the one they call a geek. A little girl who never smiles, because I've got braces on my teeth. And I know how it feels to cry myself to sleep I'm that kid on every playground who's always chosen last A single teenage mother trying to overcome my past You don't have to be my friend Is it too much to ask? Don't laugh at me, don't call me names Don't get your pleasure from my pain I heard a punk version of that song And Peter, Paul, and Mary did a version of that song You do that song in in your live performances And you've recorded it You know, Mark Wills had this mainstream country 
version. We, we've touched on this idea of there are songs that are for you to perform and there are songs that are for other people. And you can put on a hat when you're writing for other people and you can do these different things. But this is kind of a twist on that same idea is that one song can be embodied by a lot of different people and, and work in a lot of different contexts. And I think that's pretty fascinating. Well, you know, what's interesting about that, though, is that with a song like that, that to me really does have, uh, you know, I think a message that people need to take in. Yeah. Um, you know, we wrote that about our kids and talking about our own lives and, you know, getting bullied as kids and made fun of and all that, you know. And But to me, that's a huge problem in our society and not just in school. Um I think the world would be better if there was a whole lot less of it. So, yeah. Uh, and I think the arts are a great way to talk about things, right? You know, and so I'm just trying to do my little piece of the puzzle to hopefully make the help make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. And talk a little bit about that because I mean I know there was a book and and kind of kind of launched like this whole second stream of your career in terms of schools and 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 so talk a little bit about that for folks well, who might not know about you know it. peter yarrow the peter of peter paul and mary uh well all of them have always been activists yeah. they've always really believed in and talk the talk and walk the walk that music is is can change the world right and you know to peter this song was a song that really captured something going on in our society um, where ridicule had become, as he put it, commonplace. Yeah. You know, credit where credit's due, Peter started a thing called Operation Respect. He raised a bunch of money. And his whole goal was twofold. One was that there needed to be a character education curriculum right. for schools to teach kids. It's funny, you don't think you should have to teach this. <laughs> right. But to teach kids the importance of kindness, Respect, yeah. friendship, compassion, right. empathy. <laughs> right, right. You know, the second thing was that Peter believed, uh, and still does, that the arts and music and dance and theater and, you know, uh, any kind of arts are the best way to spread these kind of thoughts of kindness and respect. Yeah, yeah. And his notion was that, hey, we learn the ABCs from a song. Hmm. Think about when you're kids, all the stuff you learn from little right. nursery rhymes and, yeah, yeah. and, and songs. Um, and then if you took that theory and, and you know multiplied it to like, well, you could teach kids anything through a song. And so the notion of Don't Laugh at Me being three minutes that say to a kid, hey, be careful what words you use. You know, words matter. Yeah. And at this point, it, it really has changed my life because at some point, in the proceedings, he said to me, hey, you know, you could just be one of the guys that wrote this song or uh, you could help us. And mm -hmm. I said, what do you have in mind? And he said, well, you know, I'm pretty busy, but we're launching this program at all these schools and they're asking us for support that we don't have in our infrastructure. Right. How would you like to do assemblies at schools that are using the program? Yeah. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> I mean, in terms of what I would do in that assembly. Right. And he said, what you'd do is you'd go there and you'd sing Don't Laugh at Me and come up with like six or seven other songs. <laughs> and basically you'd do a performance for the kids 
that involved music, keep it fun, but keep it serious in terms of the message we're trying to get across, that yeah. the way you treat each other does matter. Well, the first time I did it, I was flying by the seat of my pants, but I was addicted real quickly. Like when 500 kids stand up to you in second, third, and fourth grade and sing, I'm a little boy with glasses, the one they... Like, I'd go to schools, and because of the right. program, they all knew the song. Yeah, yeah. It's like, whoa. Like, I'm in. This is like heroin, <laughs> I need more kind of thing. <laughs> right. Not that I'd know that firsthand. <laughs> but it was, it was like, unbelievable. Yeah. I'm in. I want to ask you, and and, you know... We could talk about Drum Men Don't Cry, another number one hit for, for you know, Tim McGraw. And, but I, I want to ask you about a song that's, that's, that wasn't a hit. Uh, Toby Keith cut it. Um, wasn't, a, wasn't a single, but it happens to be my favorite Steve Seskin song. Really? Which is New Orleans. Sure. Um, and uh, Toby Keith version, whatever. But the Steve Seskin version, for my money, is killer. I love I love hearing you sing that song. I think that's my favorite well, thank you. Uh, Steve Seskin song. Wednesday night supper, First Baptist Church, a stranger standing in the doorway as they were passing out dessert. He said, go on and pack your bags. I'm here to take you home. Going back to Louisiana. Woman, I ain't gonna go. There's a few defining moments in every person's life Where you know what you've done wrong And you know what you've done right Before the whole congregation Her husband and her kids She said, how dare you even speak to me After everything you did in New Orleans Oh, but that's another story at a pace that seems like very steady throughout the song and it's like each verse just going to give you a little more and then to me just it comes down to that line of the woman saying how dare you even speak to me after everything you did in New, in New Orleans. Orleans and it goes back to that hook it never says what he did yet you just know you know you, you just know the whatever this woman has left behind and to me that is like that's one of those songs that if I had to say, okay, here's my, my list of songs that kind of influenced me or songs that I admire in terms of structure, that is, that is one of the top ones because of the restraint of it and the way it says so much without hitting you in the face with it. Well, uh, th thank you very much. Um, I, I still sing that song. I love that song. And, I, you know, interestingly enough, I wrote it with Bob DiPiro and Mark Sanders, Ah, and I really? I, I did not it. know that. I could have this wrong, but I'm pretty sure we wrote it after Daddy's Money. Huh. And I felt like I dragged them to that party, kicking yeah. and screaming. Yeah, yeah. Especially Bob. Hmm. But it's one of those things where even for me, that song was a bit more mysterious right. in nature than any other song I've ever written. Yeah. And it just kind of came out that way. Um, and all three of us had a lot to do with that song. It just came out you know yeah um so 
Yeah, it's never been a single. It's never the world's never really heard it. Um, yeah. And Toby Keith did a pretty darn good job of it. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm really flattered that you love that so yeah. much because I, it's one of those songs that st- stood the test of time for me. Yeah. Um, I still sing it as if I wrote it yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and I'll close with this. It's not a question. It's it's more of kind of that song and, and tying all this conversation together, but. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier before we started recording about um, Nashville and, and, you know, I have, have very much, I, I had my time that I was writing songs and that I was pursuing that thing and have, have kind of left the songwriter thing behind and, you know, people sometimes That's ask me. That's too bad because like, you were damn good at it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, but you know, it's not the sort of thing that I lament. I think because I'm a writer in other realms, I, I do write journalistically sure. and all that stuff that, that it scratches that itch for me. Um, so I, I don't really grieve that loss, so to speak, of, of kind of putting that side of myself, you know, away for for a while anyway. Maybe one day it'll, it'll be different. But, um, yeah, I was saying to you earlier that I, I was getting to the point in Nashville where I felt like I was banging my head against the wall because I was going, man, I've I've written some of the best songs I think that, that I can write. And if they're not connecting, I don't know that I have more than that to give. And there was a moment where I was like, man, you know, some of my songs that, that I'm the most proud of are songs like two paper town, um, songs like making a life. I tell it like it was. And I'm like, wait a minute. I wrote all those songs with Steve Seskin. (laughs) And I really think that, um, probably more than anyone else that I ever wrote songs with, I've learned a lot from you. I've learned a lot from observing songs like new Orleans of, you don't have to beat people over the head with it. But I specifically remember being in, you know, writing sessions with you. And I remember, um, with making a life. And of course, people who are listening to this are like, Oh, these aren't hit songs. I don't know what you're talking about, but (laughs) making a life was a song that, that, I had this idea of don't let the big house become a broken home. What good's a pocket full of money? You you read the book. It came from a affluenza. Yeah. It came from a book called affluenza and it was talking about in America, we have big houses and broken homes. And that was kind of the, the launch of this idea. What good's a pocket full of money to empty soul. But you were the one who said like, look, you can't just preach. You know, you can't just write this whole song and be like, Hey America, our values are all screwed up. You know, we got to make this a conversation between a guy and his dad and, or something that works, something Um, that's something where you're, you feel as a listener, not that you're being blamed, but that you're eavesdropping on a conversation that allows you to resonate with it rather than be defensive. And I feel like I learned so much, even in just the, you know, four or five songs we wrote together. And I think probably only three wound up being really, truly complete songs, but, um, it taught me so much about what good songwriting is and how you say something significant without being preachy or obnoxious or ham fisted. So that's not a question. That's just me saying now that I have the perspective of a few years behind me and I can look back on that, that I really appreciate you have the heart of an educator and you do it in a very, in a way that's very natural. And well, I feel like I learned a lot about songwriting from you. And so I appreciate well, thank that. Thank you. And, and, you know, it was a pleasure writing those songs with you. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned making a life because I just used that song today at a workshop I was doing hmm. talking about that 
that, you know, the chorus is, don't let that big house become a broken home. What good's a pocket full of money to an empty soul? You know, ask yourself this question when you lay down at night. Are you just making a living or are you making a life? Now, interestingly enough, the person, psychologist who wrote that book <laughs> has no notion of like, well, am I being too preachy? Right. The preacher on Sunday morning in a church has no notion of like, right. that's my job. Right. The songwriter to me doesn't get to be, Yeah, I, I can't honestly look at the audience and sing that chorus to them without it coming off as like, excuse me, who are you? Right. What, right. what do you tell me? And and that that song really came to life when we said you know who who might say this to whom yeah and it could work well a dad saying it to his son we found a good daycare the kids are making friends I try to make it home in time to tuck them in he said don't just try son take my advice don't let that be house become a broken home what good's a pocket full of money to an empty soul ask yourself this question when you lay down at night are you just making a living or are you making a life i'm glad that uh, you felt that way because to me it's one of the most important things of songwriting is like what's the point of view how are you delivering the package yeah you know, which to me, what point of view is. And yeah. uh, again, I, I get excited about just learning from every song I write. Uh, yeah, and I was I was just thinking about that as we were talking that you were mentioning, you know, um, guys like Mike Reed and guys like Alan Shamlin, who you really looked up to and you, you know, were able to take these nuggets and you're able to learn these things and incorporate them. And then I feel like those are some things that even though we just wrote a handful of songs that I felt similarly about you that I was able to take some of these, you could pass along some of that stuff. And I hope that even by doing this podcast that we're able to expose aspiring writers to, um, to those type of voices and, and that I can even have a, some small part in, in passing along that thread. I think for writers to just sort of continue that thread of, of, of wisdom and learning from each other and looking at what came before is so important. And I fear that in music now that there's not a lot of reverence for what came before, but it's so important if people care about the craft of songwriting to care what came before, because there's, there's wisdom, you know, and, oh, and amen. I mean, I, I hope that never goes away because yeah. both musically and lyrically, it's super important to look at what came before and I always encourage writers to like find a song you truly love from whatever era it's from and take a look at it not just as a listener take a look at it as a writer yeah and and look at how it's put together what's the chord progression what's the story development like yeah you know and it may seem analytical in a way that like well why would I do that well so you could write one that good yeah. Now, please use your own idea, <laughs> your own chords. But looking at the template of how it's done yeah. is is super beneficial to being able to at least create something anywhere near as good. Yeah. You yeah. know, at, at least for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for after a long day coming over here and uh, and spending some time. This is it's been really great. My pleasure. Re really happy to be here. Thank you. 
thanks as always for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.